Bullseye listeners, it's Jesse. Um, this is a very special episode because it's not exactly a Bullseye episode. It's actually a sneak peek at a new show we've got here at Max Fun called Heat Rocks. Um, Heat Rocks is hosted by uh, my friend Oliver Wang, who you've heard on this show before, both as a panelist on our show Pop Rocket. He used to come on and give a recommendation every once in a while. And recently for his book about Filipino-American DJ culture called Legions of Boom. He reviews records for NPR and the, the Village Voice and other outlets, and he's also an academic at Cal State Long Beach. His co-host, Morgan, is a really brilliant music director. She's the person who picks the music that goes into uh, TV shows and movies like Selma and Dear White People and Queen Sugar. These two are really brilliant and amazing, in my opinion. And on every episode of the show, they invite a musician or a critic or a thinker to talk about one totally amazing record, one canonical record from the history of soul, hip-hop, R&B, jazz, and dance music. On this episode, you're about to hear they talk to Anil Dash. Uh, Anil is an old friend of mine. He's a tech CEO. He was one of the first bloggers. He's a social justice activist in the tech community, and he may literally be the most intense Prince nerd in the world. And I say that absolutely sincerely, knowing how intense the world of Prince nerds is and are. Anyway, Heat Rocks is the show. I hope you like what you hear. I hope you subscribe. Let's roll tape. Hello, I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, an album that lights their fire, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and today, we'll be warping back to 1999, the 1982 album, by his purpleness, Prince. Yo, I was dreaming when I wrote this, forgive me if it goes astray, but when I woke up this morning, could have sworn it was Judgment Day, or at least that's what I said when I read my timeline. Yo, that's an ill way to start a song. I won't ever forget those lyrics or where I heard them. The year was 1982. It was a great year for me. The album was 1999. The artist was Prince. The label was Warner Brothers. That's pre-beef Warner <laughs> Brothers. Let's make that distinction. Okay. 1999 was quadruple platinum. That's four tickets on the strength of some hit singles like Little Red Corvette and, of course, the title track, which we just heard. It wasn't as controversial as 1981's Controversy, and depending on who you ask, it wasn't as dirty as 1980's Dirty Mind. But it had a <laughs> sense of cool tracks that assembled together made Mr. Prince Rogers Nelson a star. 35 years after my first listen, I declare it flammable. 1999 is a heat rock.
if we're going to talk about Prince, there was one person that we universally agreed we had to get to, to chat about this with, which is Anil Dash. You may know him as a technology activist and advocate, CEO of Fog Creek Software, but you may also know him as the interweb's biggest Prince fan who's, who often flexes his Twitter fingers to break down the majesty of Prince and his music. Anil, thank you so much for joining us here on Heat Rocks. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. We are certainly going to get into the album 1999 uh, very shortly, but I need to ask this to kick things off. How and why did you become so obsessed with Prince? Um, you know, it might have been this album, but in general, well, I mean, first of all, I grew up in the 80s, right? So you you weren't going to avoid Prince, just like you weren't going to avoid Michael. You weren't, you know, it's, it's the air you breathe in a world with uh, three TV networks and we didn't even have MTV, uh, you know, you, you, you just, you couldn't, you couldn't miss it on the radio. Right. And, and for me, I have an older sister who, you know, is a huge influence on my life in every way, but definitely I remember around about 82, um, you know, her room down the hall, uh, and she would always have the door closed. She was already heading towards, you know, be the sort of moody teenager. And I was, I was a young kid and you would just sort of hear that muffled, like, Doom. You know, coming through the door, mm. and I was like, "What is that?" And you know, I don't think I knew what funky was yet, um, but you feel it, you feel it. And mm. I, I just, I just, I was like, "There's something." And it was funny because now, in retrospect, it's all really clear. But I was like, "Oh, there's, there's something really sort of forbidden and and mm. uh, taboo about this because there's some reason like she's got her door closed and and um, and I remember very, very distinctly, you know, she got the record, the, the double fold out LP, and. You know, I was sort of still like, I'm not going to really, st- like, I'm not going to touch her records because I know I'll get my ass beat. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm being cool. And she would get halfway through Little Red Corvette, which by that time was on the radio. And it was where the radio would, edit would fade. And she would cut it off real quick. And it was, you know, now I realize she, we weren't allowed to play curse words around our parents. Yeah. With, the, with you know, with the record player. And, and I would just be like, why is she running over the living room? To, you know, to check the needle off the record in the middle of this song that we're all enjoying. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> she knew. And she knew. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 39 albums, tons of bangers mm-hmm. and fire tracks. Why'd you pick 1999? You know, there's a lot of reasons. I, and it's funny because, like, if you ask me what's my favorite Prince album, it's, you're going to get 39 different answers, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think there, there's something about all the sort of confluence of things from – you know, one, there's songs everybody loves. Like, you can take somebody who's the most casual, like, I barely even heard of Prince, you know, some of these 90s babies, whatever, and you just, like, you play 1999, they're like, I know the words, I don't even know how I know the words, and I'm dancing. And you go the opposite direction, like, I'm a, I'm a tech guy, right? I've, I've, I've worked in tech my whole life, and that's sort of a lot of the lens I look at the world. And it is a both, it's amazing, it's both things at the same time. It is technologically astounding. Like, it is this breakthrough in the way you make records, in the way that one person could command not just the instruments but the technology of drum machines and synths and all these things and even the recording studio itself, but also that sense of foreboding of like what is mm-hmm. the millennium and mm-hmm. what is the effect of technology on our lives and, and what is this sort of computerized future going to be? And that's all in there too. So like all the other obsessions of my life about my work and, and, and all of us, I mean all of us are staring at our phones for you know 10 hours a day. That's, that's all in there too. And and then, by the way, you can get to, you know, end of the record and have something to play for your lady. Like, that's, that's it. The whole universe is there, right? Like, that's it. What more could we ask for? You know? Right. Predicting the future, 
and then a slow jam to get exactly for sure exactly. I mean, we are going to do a very deep dive into a lot of aspects with 1999. One place where I wanted to start it's just with the sound of the album, and in revisiting mm-hmm. this, it had never really occurred to me within the catalog of Prince where 99 fit in and how it marked a real shift in his sound compared to, let's oh, yeah. say, controversy the year before. And then I was needle dropping through it and then landed on Delirious. This is so quintessentially what we now think of New Wave. And, Anil, I feel like you were alluding to the idea that it wasn't simply that Prince was playing with whatever emergent sounds were coming out of the U.S. and especially Europe at the time, but that he was essential in really creating what we now think of as New Wave. And I'm wondering if, that, if that's an accurate statement. Yeah, I think he was, he was processing everything around him and putting it through his lens, right? So at the time... Um, I think people are like, nothing sounds like Delirious, right? That's, that's this really, really unique sound. And in retrospect, you can see he had his ear open to the Stray Cats, right? He had yeah. his ear open to what's happening with the Rockabilly Renaissance. And he had a bunch of songs. that He had, had Jack You Off on, on uh, 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 Controversy, and he had a Gotta Stop Messing About. He had all these different sort of new wavy sounding songs and Rockabilly sounding songs. But you don't hear – it doesn't sound like straight Rockabilly, obviously. And you get that just you know, dominating synth on top. And so there's yeah. these sort of – these these this filter he puts it through, which make like only he could make this sound. But the structure of it is you, you can and he did this in the live versions, of course, where he would always change it around. You could hear totally like he could do this with that fifty style guitar and and everything but the pompadour, and you would know exactly what that would sound like as <laughs> as this sort of swing track, right? And 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 I think that's the genius of it. And and then at the same time, like the Stray Cats were sort of, you know, we're going to rock this town, right? Yeah. Right. And and he's like, you know, I'm going to go for a little ride around your lake. And it's like, oh, I, I see that's a very subtle allegory you have laid out there, Mr. <laughs> Nelson. Like, I don't, I think I have an idea what you were intending to imply, you know? So I think that's like, it, it's as dirty as it gets on the radio in 1982. And, and I think to be able to do both of those things at once was, was that sort of unique genius that he had where... A lot of times, because he had so many songs that were just him, like nobody else in the world could have made that sound, people sort of downplayed the fact that he would also do, like, I can do you better than you. Mm. And I think that's, that's sort of where that comes from. Maybe you might remember this, Anil. There was a Barbara Walters interview with Eddie Murphy. Mm. And uh, it was right when Eddie Murphy was starting to really get big with Saturday Night Live. And so she came to his crib. I think it might have been in Jersey then. And uh, she was waiting for him. And uh, he rolled up. And he rolled up bumping delirious. And I yes. mean, bu- do you remember that interview? I think yeah. It, well, it, and then because you get to his, his special called Delirious, right? He does the stand-up. Right. Special and the, and the movie comes out as delirious and it's obviously a nod to that because that had been and especially to be transgressive on Barbara Walters <laughs> is like is like that's you know that's again that's that's that same feel right, it's like right. You're, you're you're the he's the the mirror image of what Prince is doing and and he could have been bumping anything uh, but mm-hmm. it was delirious and I always have a special memory of uh, 
yeah. of that interview and that song, a special attachment to it because of how he came in. And plus, his car was clean too. It just <laughs> of course. he had the humps. You know <laughs> but, what I'm saying? But how do you just, show? How do you show? Like, I just don't give a fuck. Right. Right. To Barbara Walters. Is, and, and at that time, there's nobody dirtier that anybody's heard of that's, in, you know, on the radio than Prince. So it's like this is the I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm as bad as it gets. Right. Right. And, and Neil, last year you gave uh, a really great talk at the IO Festival that was all about Prince, but also interwoven into a history of immigration and your own family history and all these things. And you were also, if I may add, wearing a very spank tight, shiny leather jacket, which I'm hoping that you are still wearing as we speak now. In your talk, you claim, amongst other things, uh, amongst the other honorifics that we can bestow upon Mr. Prince Rogers Nelson, uh, is that he was, quote, the coolest, sexiest, funkiest geek in the history of the world, but he was a geek. And Mm. I'm going to link to your full talk in our show notes on the webpage, but I'm wondering if you don't mind just briefly, succinctly explaining Mm -hmm. Prince's geekosity. So, yeah, I, I think the lens on this is like, I mean, everybody knows he played every instrument. Everybody knows he did all the stuff in the studio and he wrote the songs and, you know, soup to nuts, right? The, the musical genius. What is is less obvious is what it took to be doing that with, he had the first of the uh, Lynn LM1 drum machines, which yes. is the, the drum machine that you hear throughout this record. So when you, you, you know, that you start 1999 and it's a that's that's it, right? That's that sound. And what it took to be... Getting that sound out of it, it wasn't meant to make that sound, right? This is this is this box that's supposed to sound like real drums, right? And instead, it sounds like the future, right? And and how did he do that? And and the answer is not like and like this is not an exaggeration. Is you have to be a computer programmer, right? And and the thing we forget in this moment now, you know, all these thirty but thirty five years later is. Um, in 1982, Time Magazine's Person of the Year was the computer, mm-hmm. the personal right, computer. Right. The IBM PC had only come out a couple months before. Um, to be able to be like, you know, I'm I'm as funky as you want, and I play all the instruments, and I'm gonna, like he, he. There's no question he had to have been like reading the manual for this little wood paneled drum machine box and being like, how do I program this thing? And which, like, I'm sorry, there's no two ways about it. That is geeky. That is some geeky <laughs> shit, right? And and now he could take that and flip it, and it was like, yeah, and you can dance to it, you know, like so, like he get he could get that out of it, but um, to be able to do that, and then same thing with the synths, you know, one of the things you see, um, yeah, I think the best way to sort of, and I know you said succinct, but I'm gonna go along anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, one of the things I think about is August seventh, nineteen eighty two. And, you know, I was a kid. I don't know what I was doing. I was, I was eating my, my, you know, Fruity Pebbles. But that morning, August 7th, 1982, Prince wakes up and he hasn't recorded or written any songs yet. And by the time he goes to bed, probably early that next morning, uh, he had wrote and recorded 1999 and Little Red Corvette, both in one day. Mm. And it's a good day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that in the day that uh, Dolly Parton wrote, I will always love you and Jolene in the same day. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Those are the greatest days of, you know, pop music songwriting in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and to do that is not just you can play every instrument and you have the genius to write these songs and you have this in your mind and you've memorized all the parts. It is I can I can get these machines to do this thing. Right. To make this sound that I want. And, and what he does you know, in that moment is uh, you're, you're programming the drum machine, you're programming the synths, you, you're keeping in your in your head that beat the whole time to be able to play along with it. 
Um, and that wall of sounds at the beginning of 1999, just that, you know, the, the, the hardest hitting since anybody had ever heard, um, is this perfect manifestation of like, I will do whatever it takes. If it's learn every instrument, if it has become a computer programmer, if it is, you know, stand up my own parallel music industry in Minneapolis, whatever it takes to get this sound out in the world. Yeah. When I was thinking about the sound of the drum machine and the Lin and how much that defined not just Prince's music, but really, you know, along with the TR-808, that was the other really important drum machine of the 1980s. And the mm-hmm. one song on the album, on 1999, the album that really, to me, captures what Prince is doing and playing around with the Lin is on DMSR. And Anil, what I like about what you just had to say there is that even though part of the programming behind the Lin was to really try to capture what quote-unquote realistic drum sounds are, are supposed to sound like, Prince flips it because that sound sounds completely unnatural and completely synthetic, and that's exactly what gives it its juice and what powers mm-hmm. and makes so many songs that were made with the Lin or similar drum machines of that era, what gives them their personality is because they don't sound like real drums, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know you see that parallel to autotune. Like autotune was around for years and really other yeah. than shares Believe wasn't used that way. And until Believe comes out and, of course, sort of the post-T-Pain moment when it's everywhere, what what they're doing is it was supposed to level out your sound so it sounded like you're on tune. And if you, if you turn it up past its limits, it sounds artificial and distorted and interesting and sort of hangs a you know, lampshade on the artificiality of it. And this is what Prince did with the drum machine. Like it was, it was everything was cranked up like not to 11, but to like 147, right? Like way, <laughs> way, way past where it's supposed to go. And, and so you get that, that hard hitting sound and you are saying like, you know, damn it, this isn't real, right? This is a thing I made. And, and I think especially at that moment where people are just starting to have the first inklings of what – and it's funny because you, you – you know, we have this Echo 35 years later. Like that's the year Blade Runner came out. Yeah. And we have this this Echo 35 years later of like we're going to revisit Blade Runner. We're revisiting these exact same themes of like what is technology in the world? What are computers? Uh, what are the ways they're going to transform art and culture and society? What is the threat of nuclear war like? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, like every single one of these echoes – comes back and the way he calls that out is like this is what the sound of technology is in in the world the story i take away is um you know uh 1999 and little boy corvette the last songs he records for the album Mm. and so and this is an interesting tradition so so when does cry is the last song he does for purple rain Mm. and 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 this happens a bunch of times throughout his his career where right at the end of this sort of i'm making an album process he's like this eureka moment and rushes to get like a song done that becomes the the, the cap capstone on the whole project and sort of defines it. And this happens with 1999. And that now we talk about that heavy hitting synth, and that's the sound of the era. This is also the moment. Let's let's not forget. Um, uh, Michael and Quincy are in the studio doing Thriller, mm-hmm. and and in in late summer, 
early fall 82, they decide to throw away all the stuff that, you know, those sort of basic tracks they had done on Thriller and like remix and remaster the album because it didn't sound great. And they, mm. I think that's when they switched in um, Thriller as one of the last tracks they added in. And specifically, and Quincy's talked about this a bunch of times. Quincy Jones has said this a number of times in interviews. Michael heard the opening synths on 1999. It was like, we have to get bigger. We have to get louder. Thriller, the song, has to open with even fatter synths than that. And it does, right? <laughs> This sort of like one-upsmanship, and yeah. and I think this is the reason Thriller doesn't come out until December of '82. Is like they like we're going to go back, you know, we're going to go back to work, and we're going to try and top the 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 heaviness of this sound that that Prince has brought out. And and I, I think that's one of those things where you think about, you know, the 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 most definitive music video of all time, the best-selling album of all time. What's in the ears of the people making that record? Yeah. is 1999. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I think Oliver mentioned that this was a straight-ahead New Wave um, album. Can you talk a little bit about New Wave and what, to you, made it a straight-ahead New Wave album? I think the identity of New Wave at the time was very white, right? It was very British-identified, very white, and it had a look, right? And even the the, the shoulder pads and, and some of the, the aesthetics of it. Lace. Yes. Yeah, Heavy you know, lace. Like that. So, yeah, exactly. And he starts to pull that in. And and so I think one of the things I saw was these are the first videos of his that I think most of us saw. Like there were earlier music videos, but he wasn't getting played on MTV certainly until Little Red Corvette. And what you saw white faces, right? You saw Matt Fink, you saw Lisa Coleman. At that time, uh, I thought Jill Jones was white, um, and you saw her in the video. And you know, and she could certainly pass. And I think that was not accidental that she sure. was presented that way. And and so you're just like, wow, this is like this is some other stuff. And so I think. The biggest thing for me in, in connecting it to what I'd perceived then as a very white movement was like, oh, there's white people in this band. Like, he's got a white drummer? Like, that's nuts. Like, I would never, you know, like, there was nobody, like, you didn't see Cool in the Gang with a white drummer, right? Like, that was not, you know, like, that's not, that's not the move. Um, you know, I mean, if you had had a white bass player, that would have been some other, like, that a whole nother level. But I was just like, that's... That's wild. Like, that's really out there. So I connected on it as – and I wasn't, you know, fluent and racist as a little kid. But, like, you just see this, like, oh, he he has these people and the way they're dressed and all of them look like they're connected to this other scene that I'm told is completely separate hmm. from what he's sold to me as. And literally the record is filed in the store as R&B. Right. You know? Right. And, and yet a lot of the, the sound of this album reminded me of other songs of, of that time. And other bands, Dead or Alive, Spandau Ballet, mm-hmm. all this stuff I was seeing. Gary it, Newman. Billy Idol, yeah, yeah, right? right? Like right. Billy Idol's huge around that. And and you, you, you hear them back to back. You're like, yeah, this is this is of, of a piece. These are from the same you know moment. And he presented himself uh, similarly to those artists. You certainly saw the androgyny, as we mentioned, the mm-hmm. lace. So, yeah. and, and this album was so synthy. To me, it was like electro, pop, disco, all those elements. And yet, it, out here, it was played on R&B radio. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I mean, I grew up in, in basically rural Pennsylvania, and uh, our family was just about the only people of color in the whole area. Um, and they wouldn't play it on the radio where I grew up. It was too black. Like, they were straight up about it. They're like, you know, you call in as a kid and request it. And, like, they would play it on, you know, Casey Kasem's Top 40 when, sure. when, when Little Red Corvette hit. They would play it. But if you called to request it, like, I'm, you know, I want to hear this song, they'd be like, yeah, we don't play that kind of music. 
We will be back with more of our conversation with Anil Dash on Princess 1999 after a brief word from some other great Max Fun podcasts. Don't go anywhere. What's up? I'm James, the co-host of Minority Corner. And look at that. I'm Aneke, the other co-host of Minority Corner. Girl, guess what? What? We just hit our 100th episode. What? And what do you think is going to be in store for the next 100? Probably some more feuds with Jennifer Hudson. And I'm telling you. I'm we'll probably do more investigative reporting, too, like we did with the Kodak and their racist film. Not to mention exposing the truth, like how we did with the ugly history of the Texas Rangers. But we always lighten the mood with a splash of pop culture. Olivia Pope's new wig. Have you seen that? It's popping. Just like your lip gloss. And Janet Jackson. And you know we like to put our nerd glasses on and talk about things like marvel it's true that's it (laughs) (laughs) i don't speak about dc (laughs) but you just did all from a perspective that's black queer and ladylike so come on over and learn laugh and play and join the corner it's a lot of fun i'm having fun right now (laughs) (laughs) minority Minority corner (laughs) oh sorry about that just had to dispatch some goons real quick hi I'm April Wolf, lead film critic at LA Weekly, and when I'm not kicking butt, I'm hosting the new Maximum Fun podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Do you love genre films? Do you love female filmmakers? Do you love discussions on craft? If your answer is yes, you'll love Switchblade Sisters. Every episode, I invite one female filmmaker on, and we talk in-depth about their fave genre film and how it influenced their own work. So we're talking horror, action, sci-fi, fantasy, bizarro, and exploitation cinema. Mothers, lock up your sons, because the Switchblade sisters are coming for you. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We're back on Heat Rocks, talking about Prince's 1999 with Anil Dash. So we ask this of all of our guests, Anil, um, and one of the questions uh, is, what's the fire track off the I album for you? you? Heavy decibels and, uh, <laughs> and repeated play. The, the party started every time is the song 1999. You know, and it's, it's the obvious hit. It's the one everybody knows, and you always want to pretend like you're too cool to go with it. But I tell you <laughs> what, you know, you, you go any room in the world – and it doesn't matter what's happening. You put that on, and people are going to start dancing. And it just it just moves you. And it is, it is. It's funny. You can put it as quiet as you want in your headphones, whatever. And that song is loud every time. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun. You know, this has become sort of a recurrent theme for me on uh, Heat Rocks, at least, is about uh, me growing up in the church. And so, as such, I've heard the apocalypse described in many ways. A fun party-filled atmosphere wasn't one of them. <laughs> um, and especially when the song starts out, don't worry, I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun. And the voice itself, to me, at least sounded godlike. So I'm in here trying mm. to debate, like, okay, so is that... Is the apocalypse cool or is it not cool? What's yeah. going on? So what was Prince trying to say there? Because I think, I just want to read this quote here. It was a pitchfork review. And, and oh, it started out where Maura Johnston said, 1999 is the greatest album ever made about partying as a way of staring down oblivion. What are mm. your thoughts on that? And what do you think Prince was really trying to say about the afterlife or the yeah. apocalypse? You know, I've I've been to see Prince with Maura, so she knows what she's talking about. Mm. Um, for me, 
you know, I, I grew up in a, in a raised in a Hindu household and learned about really all of Christianity and, and American Christian culture secondhand, primarily through Prince's music. Wow. Um, and and it is it's actually funny. I didn't know that the Lord's Prayer was not the lyrics to controversy until I was in high school. <laughs> Um, that's a true, that's a true story. That's honest. That's, that's absolute truth. I, uh, I was like, man, somebody's like got a poster on their wall with like the lyrics to controversy. <laughs> like that's wild. <laughs> I think it was like a needle point. This is our father who are now. I was like, wow. That and they're a, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's Prince not fan. Princeton right that. Yeah. My vision of what Christianity even is in, in culture today is very, very different because this was my introduction to it. These were also the Reagan years. Yeah. And people legitimately had fears of bombs, you know, oh, yeah. and wars. And he had referenced Ronald Reagan before. I think Ronnie Talked to Russia is one of my mm-hmm. favorite uh, favorite mm-hmm. songs I was listening to the other day. And I was like, wow, this Russia thing again. Um, so I think, yeah. uh, <laughs> why does that keep coming up? But um, I, so I think this song was not only about, not only religious, but also political, his fear of the time. And I, I, I always wondered, was, it, w- w- was he scared of 1982 or was he scared of 1999? Yeah, and, and I, I also think of like he's connecting to you know obviously that Reagan moment and and the sort of the height of the Cold War and 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 I think that it, that interesting t- thing to me is blending his faith with the political moment and of course this like I think his true sort of artistic expression and those are all indistinguishable to him. I mean, there's no he's not like laying it on thick of like let me make a connection between those things. It's like those are all one thing. Right. Morgan was quoting from Mora, uh, writing for Pitchfork, and I had also pulled out a, a quote from a, a review about this album. This is from originally written back in 82. This was the uh, original Rolling Stone review written by Michael Hill, who describes the album, and I think really talking about the song, the title song in particular, uh, as being, quote, social freedom through sensual anarchy, oh. which I thought is a great turn of <laughs> phrase. And oh, yeah. as much as 1999, both the title song and especially the album is about the end of the world and apocalypse, it's also about sex. And so <laughs> this leads me to a very heavy, very ham-fisted transition into the song for me that I will always think about because it was my introduction to Prince. And we've talked about it many times, uh, referenced it uh, in this episode so far which is Little Red Corvette. My enduring memory of this song is that it was playing in the car when my dad was driving. And I did not grow up in a particularly religious household, but it was still... And this goes back to everything we've been saying about Prince being the dirtiest artist on the radio back in that era is that when Little Red Corvette came on, my dad basically changed the channel and <laughs> explained to me, you really shouldn't be listening to this, which, of course, when you tell this to some, I was, what, maybe 10 years old at the time, it only piques your interest. Like, oh, what, what was yeah. that then? Um, I guess it could have been worse. It could have been Erotic City, which would have been a really <laughs> awkward car ride. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about this, the the sensual anarchy of this album because I do think it's such a big part of it. And Morgan, I know you got something to say about this. Well, first of all, when uh, <laughs> I was so naive, like I love this record, but I'm here to say I didn't really understand it fully until I became an adult. When I was mm-hmm. a kid and I was listening to Little Red Corvette, when he says a uh, pocket full of Trojans, uh, some of the muse, I was like, wait, I thought that was about USC, okay? I completely, I, I didn't know what that man was talking about. I knew it was a jam, but I didn't know. Um, <laughs> the one thing about this album that, that's interesting to me about the sexual nature of it is 
sexuality as modes of transportation. We've got lady mm-hmm. cab driver. We've got little red Corvette. We've got mm-hmm. planes on international lover. He's like some sensual sort of Captain Sully. You know, he gets you <laughs> to your location <laughs> safely. Um, I'll take you there. <laughs> right, locked and loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, so... One of the one of the ways that I think sex played out for him was 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 with bonus material. At the end of a lot of these songs was this sort of long drawn out situation, mm. for lack of a better word. The end of of of, uh, of Lady Cab Driver. I mean, man, t- mm. you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do recall. So I don't know if my mom was going to be listening to this one, so I, I wanted you to say what you, if you knew what mm-hmm. I was talking about. But, yes. at, but at the end of that, I've been a radio DJ for a while, and I remember I would always have to fade out about oh, halfway yeah. through the song. You were like a Neil sister. Oh, <laughs> exactly, in the living room. Well, that was the thing. is You know, he's, he, Little Ray Corvette, I mean, it's not, it, now it's nothing. He's like, you got an ass like I've never seen. But you couldn't say that on the radio no. in 1982. No. You know, and they would fade it in a hurry. Like, it, it wasn't one of these, gra- it was just like, whoop, and we're out. I mean, exactly. And especially in Lady Cab Driver where he's like, and this is mm-hmm. for, and mm-hmm. this is for, and there was no Towards way. Towards Disneyland. <laughs> I feel like a bit of a hypocrite, so I'm going to bear my soul to you, uh, uh, Anil, <laughs> and uh, also right. Oliver, because part of my criticism of today's R&B is I'm like, it's so dirty. I was like, <laughs> I'm always like, man. And I have to catch myself when I go to back in the day, especially as we're talking about this album, because yeah. this album was so dirty. But I you mean, know it was what, cool, though. though. But Pris play with it, because there's a couple things that are different, and I think one of it is... Uh, like, like you know, you have the sort of one. Like he would use sex as a metaphor for something else, right? right? As, instead of the reverse. Like I think that was that was really interesting. And the other thing was that uh, one, like he loved women. Like there is no denigration of women. There's a like, why did you treat me so bad? You know, uh, and and you know why, why that that sort of like something in the water does not compute kind of thing. But there wasn't like he's not denigrating these women, and it's very it's all very consensual. And, and I think that vibe is very very different. Than a lot of what you know we sort of would critique in contemporary R&B. And the other thing is the like, it was transgressive then. It's not now, right? Right. So like the purpose of it in culture is this different thing. And I see this very analogous to like what Stevie did vocally, where he would got you know have the melisma and like came up in the church, and you have this sort of like the chops to do what he's doing, and then you get to people who are oversinging in the sort of like post American Idol era, where they're like, they don't know why they're doing it. They're just like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to take it to 11 right? And, and crank it up. And I think the same thing happens. They're like, well, Prince was dirty, so I should be as dirty as I can be. And it's like, that wasn't why it worked. Like, he was writing songs. And to like, there was songcraft. Right, and it was metaphorical. It, it wasn't mm. like a, a sister, which... Yeah. Uh, even I knew what that meant. Okay. Yeah. And yep. or you know, <laughs> or or I'll jack you off, which you which yep. you mentioned, which was pretty hard to play, um, yep. in, at the crib. Um, and so <laughs> there was there was a smoothness. Um, mm-hmm. to, it was there was a smoothness to how 
you know, he spoke about women and, and, and he seemed very much like he adored women. And to your point, he wasn't denigrating them. It just mm-hmm. was it just was tough to get away with them at the crib. Uh, Anil, so we know what your fire track is. What is the sleeper jam for you? You know, th- there's so many on this. And, and I, I, I always come back to something in the water does not compute. Um, I, I think it is just it, whenever I'm trying to show people, there's a handful of songs that are like, uh, you probably don't know this if you're a casual fan, but this is Prince being his most princely. Like only he could do this. And the sound of it, the distance of it, like where he's sort of and, – and you think of it, one of the things to listen for on this is how different his vocal style is than it is on 1999. Yeah. This, the mm. tone of his voice, uh, the way he's, he's doing this. And then, of course, this is um, – very emotionally vulnerable, which is actually pretty new in his whole um, body of work. His first record, I mean, part of it is like he wrote it when he's a teenager, but his first record, he's got a little bit of like, oh, you know, baby, what are we going to do? Like he's got this very sort of figuring out his way forward kind of thing. But once he sort of becomes Prince properly, like around Dirty Mind, he's just all swagger and attitude and, and you know, sort of be, be, being the, the person we knew, you know, that's become larger than, than life. And then the sound of this, I mean, you could release this today and it would be cutting edge. Yep. Ooh, that's oh, a hit. Morgan, yes. do you have a sleeper track off of this album? Free is a sleeper track for me. But real quick about... Uh, about something in the water. I mean, one of the great lines in there is, uh, some people tell me I got great legs, can't figure out why you make me beg. So to your point about him being vulnerable, I, I was like, yo, who's turning Prince down? Mm. <laughs> who, <laughs> who? And beyond that, what man, what man, what nominally straight man <laughs> has ever talked about how good his legs are right. on a record? <laughs> ever in your straight life? Straight up. Before or since? Right. Swag. Prince did have nice gams. Yeah, he, he wasn't wrong. The no, man never no, lied. He wasn't. He wasn't. But it was just a bold statement for the time. Yeah. But yeah, free is my uh, my sleeper. It's precious. Mm. It's sweet. Um, it's so earnest. It is. It's woke. Um, mm. I love it. I mean, it's just uh, it's just vulnerable, and I mean mm-hmm. that, that that's we we were talking uh, about another album with another guest, and we were talking about the album that he was talking about having two sides, and mm-hmm. I think this album has two sides. You definitely have, you know, you have the very sexual side, you've got certainly the the religious and political side, but but also you have a real vulnerable side, and that that's just one of my favorite songs because yeah. um, his voice is just so sweet, it's so soft, um, and it it sort of you know lacks all these other elements but it's it's personal yeah I, I think um, free is also I feel like the the sort of test version of what would become purple rain the song mm. um, because I think you have this I'm gonna make an anthem I'm gonna bring in some guitar in a, in a more rock style, I'm going to have an anthemic sort of 
part that you can sing along to, and as he did. I mean, this song "Free Live" was incredible. Was incredible. I never heard him play it live without being in tears. Like it was just mm-hmm. so sincere and so earnest and so vulnerable. And and it's a brave thing to say. I mean, because it's like it's a thin line between earnest and corny, right? Yeah. Right. You know, like you like he's he's right on. And it's like be glad that you're free. Free to change your mind. Like, it's like, uh huh. Like, it sounds like G.I. Joe. You know, like, what is this? Um, and, and to pull that off and still be just cool, you know, cool as a cucumber. And then, and at the same time, like, everybody, and it was when it was, you know, 15,000 people in an arena, when it was, you know, uh, a couple dozen of us in, in a club, um, everybody is just like, my heart is open. This means something to me in this moment when he would play it live. And I think that was because. He meant it. Like he really believed it. And and I think there's this this other mode of especially pop stars do a like, well, this is my record to do a ballad with some kids singing in the background and I'm gonna talk about healing the world and whatever and like no shade to Michael, but like you know what I mean. And <laughs> right. and cube like you know, and you're just like, Oh god, yeah, here comes a kid's choir and yeah. like, okay, I get it. Like this is your record to do the thing <laughs> and you're gonna raise some money for a good cause. Um and and like and whatever and like that like people do that and you get you know Jesus children of America like there's that thing and this was like it took the place of that but he meant it mm. and it wasn't this sort of cynical let me prove i care about the world it was like this is how i'm feeling right now mm. sonically uh this song free sounds to me a lot like god mm-hmm. um, his mm-hmm. quiet the way the the build of the song and uh, what i like about those songs is that they're just it's just it's a quiet sounding print that makes you pay attention to what he's saying there wasn't mm-hmm. any synth there's no drums he's not playing the guitar and there weren't that many songs that i remember in the same way that i remember free i just wanted to make a point about america too because this was mm-hmm. before we got to around the world in the day and that's my favorite prince album actually and uh mm. one of my favorite songs is uh is is America by the mm-hmm. time we we got we got there he was singing a different tune about america well, yeah, and and free, you know, was recorded on Sunday, uh, like a lot of his sort of most spiritual wow. songs, and you know, the next day he did "How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore," which was the B side in nineteen ninety nine, and sure. sort of the first of his reign of incredible B sides that came out those next several years, and um, and he, you know, he kind of makes me wonder, like, I want to go back and look, like, what happened in the news that week, mm. like, what was happening in the world, mm. because he goes back to like, it's going to be me and this piano, and it's going to be my heart is going to be open. And I'm just going to be, you know, pouring it all out there. And and these were this totally different side than we'd seen of him before. Uh, and I think that that really was just this this other. He's sort of opening up as an artist and accessing a different part of himself than he'd ever been able to do before. Hmm. And Neil, one of our previous guests had said that Prince's "If I Was Your Girlfriend" should become just a, a stone cold classic. Like every artist mm-hmm. should cover it. <laughs> Off of this 1999 album, is there a song here that you would like to hear? A contemporary artist take on what would the song be and who would the contemporary artist be to cover it it's actually it's a song that means a lot to me all the critics love you in new york mm-hmm. um, why you can play what you want to all the critics love you in new york and it was uh i think it was prince responding to well, you know, obviously very literally, like him being accepted by critics, but also having this distance of like having the, you know, honestly having the balls to mock them 
um, and be like, if you say, you know, they won't think you're naive if you play what you believe in New York. You know, like it's very like I'm the Midwesterner and I'm in the big city. And what a change from when he'd been amazed to be in New York just a couple years earlier as a teenager. Um, and, and, and it's funny for me, like I worked with the village voice for a while. It was one of the first jobs I got after I moved to New York. Mm. I, I, I took it because I had understood the village voice to be that place where they write about Prince records and like them. You know what I mean? Like that was really, that was it. I was like, this song is about, um, you know, Chris Gow and, and him saying, this is like Prince makes good records. And so I want to go be at that place. Let, let uh, the record reflect, though, that Bob Criscow gave this album only an A-, minus, yeah. which is actually, for Bob in that era, that actually is pretty yeah. generous, yeah. but it's still yeah. a minus. There's still a minus on there, which is, you know, Asian yeah. F, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. But all you know what? I mean, like, not for nothing, but like people coming up in rock in that world, like, I, I'm surprised it was that high. They weren't ready. Mm. Like, this thing is so far ahead of its time. I almost don't fault people for being like, I don't get it yet. It'd bring the house down. You said you've seen uh, Prince at many shows. Did you ever wear purple to the show? Did I? Come on now. You got to respect <laughs> the man. He would ask, you know, he put it then on, on the, the ticket, ticket right? Yeah, he'd be like, Make, wear something sexy, wear something purple. You know, like, all right, yes, sir. Was there any leather yes. in there? Any purple leathers? Yeah. Whatever. Purple leather is a little much. Now, you got to be. <laughs> you got to be Prince. You got to be a certain. You know what I mean? Like, there's. It's like you got to be Eddie Murphy in, <laughs> in, in, in between 1983 and 1985 to sure. pull off purple leather in front of others uh but i could do purple or leather like you don't want to okay. you know you don't want to be too much nobody's nobody's here to see me <laughs> that said i need to see an anil dash prince outfit now the prince concert outfit just to get it you know get capture the look here in terms of what we're talking about how would you describe 1999 if you only had three words to do it hmm hmm Seeing the future. Oh, seeing the future. I like it when the guests come up with a phrase instead of three adjectives. Not that I mind the three That's adjectives, cool. but I, but it is it takes a next level to sort of patch together <laughs> a Hemingway esque of succinctness <laughs> phrase. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Seeing the future. But but that is what he did. That is what he did. It's all there. Like I said, we we just came up with from 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 Blade Runner to 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 nuclear annihilation to to the the influence of tech on our lives, whatever. Every single one of these things he saw, you know, and and, and called out and, uh, and, you know, and brought receipts. You can't argue with genius like that. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our very special guest, Anil Dash. Anil, where can people find you? Uh, I'm Anil Dash everywhere. AnilDash.com, Anil Dash on Twitter, uh, wherever you want to find me. Um, and I am always happy to talk to fans of 1999 and F Prince. Thank you so much for joining us. This was delightful. Thank you. This was really a blast. Anil Dash talking about Prince's 1999. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Heat Rocks right now. As in, like, you're still listening. So reach into your pocket, pull your phone out. Press the home button or whatever. Open up your podcast app. I'll wait. Now type in Heat Rocks and hit search. Okay, well, there it is. Oh, look at that great logo. Hit subscribe. Now we're talking new episodes every Tuesday. Really fun guests coming up, including some folks that you love from Bullseye. Heat Rocks. Subscribe to it. Tell a friend. I'm so proud of it. We'll talk to you again on Bullseye next time.